Welcome to the Insight Myanmar podcast. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you know that we have a lot more written and video content on our website. If you haven't visited yet, we invite you to take a look at www.insightmyanmar.org. In addition to complete information about all of our past podcasts, there's also a variety of blogs, books, and videos to check out. And you can sign up for our regular newsletter as well. But for now, enjoy what follows, and remember, sharing is caring. Steve Gerrand uh, from Canada. And I'm Kati Schweitzer from Germany. And we're here to talk about a trip that uh, we made to Myanmar in 2016 16. as part of a world <laughs> trip. Um, we didn't get a honeymoon, really, did we? <laughs> <laughs> well, but that was kind of that was kind of it. We took almost a year to go a few places in the world, so it's sort of a honeymoon, and and the, the Dhamma part was in Myanmar. Yeah, and actually it turned out it was, for me at least, it was my favorite country of the whole trip. Like, we were planning to go there for a month, and then we left the country, got another visa, came back in, and it was kind of, it's the like the dearest memory of the whole trip actually come from Myanmar. <laughs> yeah, a lot of nice little surprises. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and we did a meditation course while there and did try and check in on the monastery life. Mm-hmm. So we've mm, come from, great. yeah, I, I, had, I had been meditating for quite a while. And actually my first course um, in the, it was in the Goenka tradition. And my first course happened to be in Bodhgaya and uh, knowing nothing about Buddhism or any kind of meditation. I just happened to, to be there and do my first course and, after the uh, after the course, the the assistant teacher said she was from Bombay, and she said, "Being here, I want to I want to see some of the sacred Buddhist sites around Budgaya, and were there any of these students? There weren't very many of us who wanted to come, and so a few of us crammed into a taxi with her and spent a whole day seeing these incredible Buddhist sites. And only later on did I find the connection to to Myanmar and. <laughs> the door sure swung open to more sacred sites when we were on our trip. Mm. Yeah, so in your time in Myanmar, you went once and then went out of the country and came back in because you wanted to get even more out of it. What stands out from your time there? Well, oh, so much. Like, I mean, for me, the most the most wonderful thing were really the people. I thought it was just 
they were so like lovely and and gentle and naturally friendly and it was so inspiring to see how they're like they seem so genuinely happy and and open so we have i don't know i have lots of little memories of just people being super open and friendly and grabbing us and giving us food you know they have so little in a way yeah. but they gave us they're constantly giving things making presents laughing giggling asking questions the humility there just seems to come naturally to a point where you know everybody no matter what age it's just it seems very cute because they're smiling and at all at all distances like and and also also not being very uh very awkward or concerned about social you know social issues or, or uh, standards so they would just they would just look at us and laugh you know, yeah. there'd be something about us that was odd or new for them, and they would just laugh and laugh into each other's shoulders. And <laughs> but it was in such a, it was in such a kind of natural way that you couldn't, you couldn't really feel offended or strange about it. One time we got laughed at because Steve is ten years older than me, and I guess I look younger. <laughs> Maybe he looks younger than his age, or I look older than his age, and I look younger than my age. I don't know. But anyway, they found they thought. They were that we were father and daughter, and then they found out that we were not, and they were just laughing their head off. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was very funny. And then they painted um, sandalwood on, your on cheeks. my cheeks. Yeah. yeah. Mm, right, right. Yeah. So you went not just for tourism, but you went uh, to want to deepen your meditation. And we met when you were over there, so I knew something of where you were going, who you were meeting, and some of the mm -hmm. impact at the time. But looking at it from the standpoint of people, to, the two of you who were quite engaged and interested in wanting to pursue a meditation practice and coming to Myanmar to want to develop further in, into the teachings, see how they're integrated holistically into the society, learn from monastic life, as you just referenced, that you spent some time in monasteries. What was the experience stepping into that Dhamma environment, and how was it different from those kind of Buddhist or meditative environments that you had been in many times previous to Myanmar? Well, <clears throat> for, for people who who know the Guenka tradition, it's, it's tailored much for, for Westerners who, who try to step away from any religious inclinations of, of a practice like this. So we were, I was really brought into it, um, just on the personal practice and just on you, you get out of it, you know, in terms of hard work, what you put into it and nothing about faith and nothing about, trusting, um, you know, ex expecting just because you know or trust someone or they're an authority that something good should happen to you, you know. Um, in fact, I remember being at um, Dhamma Jyoti, the, uh, the Goenka Vipassana Center in Yangon, and uh, one of the signs on the walls was was referencing this element or this this part of one of the discourses of the Buddha that said, don't believe anything you say it doesn't matter if they're your teacher it doesn't matter if they're high authority in your society it doesn't matter if it's the buddha just see what happens when you experience it when you practice it and it, it was this long message that 
that's, that really gets ingrained. So when we went there and, and, uh, we saw how much it was gushing in the society, both in people's own lives and how much people, how many people, um, <clears throat> ordained for longer or short, shorter mm-hmm. periods and how many, how many Buddhist sites there are old and not so old and new and, and still being constructed all over the place. That was a real, it, w- it was kind of an amazing thing, but also a little bit of a shock to see how external it is compared on how, how internal we were, we're kind of trained to always look towards, you know, you don't see even people with little idols or shrines, you know, maybe small things to remind them of, of the, the idea of the Buddha, but certainly not of the Buddha as a kind of uh, figure who's going to have any kind of power in your own practice. Um, so I, I was both ma- amazed by that, but also struggled a bit to, to understand what the, pra- what the practice, the Buddha's essential type of teaching was compared to how people who also came from probably similar traditions that really held the essential teachings of just seeing what's happening and what's passing, but also lived this life of, you know, continual beliefs and donations and, and getting into the, the possible magic and the power of, of enlightened ones. And yeah, I struggled with it, but, but by the end, and I think being there longer, it, it, um, I was able to, to understand it, um, um, as a culture that's much more rich and complex than just what, what I had known about the practice and that you can go back and forth from one to the other and they can enrich each other, this outside and inside and family and community as well involved in the, as well as the personal practice. Well, I thought it was in a way a relief. It was a relief to be in a country where, the practice is so much part of everyday life because um, after having traveled in other countries, we had we had sometimes, you know, problems to find like a place where we could meditate during the day or like we were like, okay, where can we, where can we go and sit? I mean, no problem in Myanmar, right? <laughs> like there's, <laughs> there's a pagoda everywhere. You can, you can sit and meditate everywhere, wherever you want. And then also, um, that you can like some of the of the terms we know from the practice from the meditation you know some um whatever like pariyati patipati or like there's there's little like words we know from the practice that we could use with with the Myanmar people because they know the mm-hmm. words as well so we could kind of like a little bit communicate using that using language, language yeah. yeah using pali basically yeah yeah, yeah. And that I thought it was really nice to have that kind of common understanding with people. Like, and even if they meditate in another tradition, like we would sometimes just sit with people who were meditating um, in their practice or whatever. And then later they would maybe come and we would try to communicate what we are doing, what they are doing. And I thought it was really nice to be in a country that's where it's so naturally in the culture, what we do, whereas in Western countries, well, still a bit more exotic in a way. <laughs> yeah. And they're cha- even doing playing chantings on, on the bus 
rather yeah, than true. Yeah. rather than like yeah. music. Sometimes there's some of the buses were still playing monks doing chanting that, and we could recognize some elements that were that of of, of chanting or suttas we had heard before, but it, it was always in a a different timber or speed, and so sometimes you couldn't always pick it out. But it was cool to to see that integrated and woven into just normal life, like mm. sitting on a bus or or sitting in your hotel room and hearing a, a speaker where they were going through the suttas on a in a temple nearby. Mm. Yeah, those are great memories, and it reminds me of the first time that I ever came to Myanmar and feeling a similar thing that I was able to go to. Uh, pagodas and just practice at any time and, and not just have a place to practice, but not be weird for doing it, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, and um, when, when I would be out and about in the U S there, there were very few places I could go. It was, sometimes it'd be parks or something. The weirdest place I ever meditated was um, a, uh, the poolside of a Las Vegas casino. And um, <laughs> we, uh, the security guard came over and, uh, and said to us, you know, you got, cause we were on, on lounge chairs by the pool with our eyes closed. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, you guys can't be sleeping here. He thought we were some kind of riffraff. And, you know, we opened <laughs> our eyes alert and aware and said, we're not sleeping. And it was like out of a Star Wars thing, like a Jedi mind trick. He kind of repeated back, oh, you're not sleeping. And I said, no, we're going to be leaving soon. And he said, oh, you're leaving soon. And he walked away. <laughs> we continued. But, um, you know, like in Europe or Mexico, I recall going in, yeah. uh, in churches. But it was, in some sense, it was almost like trying subversive and hiding what I was actually doing. Exactly. Um, because it wasn't really natural. And I, when I first started to go to pagodas, it was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing here, you know? And I'm looking up and seeing, find a nice Buddha statue where you can just catch the peaceful expression on the Buddha's face from the right angle, which, you know, in the middle of a difficult sitting gives you the inspiration you need in a certain moment. And, you know, I'd, I'd get up from sitting and people around would be looking really approvingly and, and supportively. And I just remember feeling like this is... This is this is all I want for it to be in a society where I can practice like this. And of course, once I went to live, I found out that it lived there for as long as I did. It was uh, there was uh, many more layers that beyond that that I I hadn't been aware of. But that initial kind of um, um, coming home and familiarness of familiarity of, uh, of of being able to integrate integrate the practice in that way and and to to not have to not have to bring it into a closed space and a closed community, but to, to do it in a society that encouraged and promoted and celebrated that it it was, it was, it just blew me away. It was so remarkable. And um, I'm wondering, I'm wondering for you as well, you know, you, you talked about what it was like to go into that atmosphere. I'm wondering what it was like to come out of it and then go back into the kind of Goenka systems and centers that that you're into, because really these are just different cultural systems. These are different sets of conditionings and underlying rules that some that are talked about, some that aren't, uh, assumptions, whichever group, whichever kind of Dhamma group that you're in. And so as you had some kind of culture shock going into the Burmese way, and you didn't stay there all that long, a couple months maybe in, in some monasteries, but enough to learn something and integrate with their life. When you then went back into into the Gwenka system, what did what did you bring with you? What did you what did you carry on? What did you remember? And how was that transition back into that? Um, how how was that experience? Well it allowed me to to release some of the um, some of the preciousness and, and some of the internal like self-imposed rigidity about um you know my personal practice and and the way courses are set up to to have people focus there's 
there's a lot of rules. And when you're, you know, a new meditator or trying to be a serious meditator, then you really stick to those and it, it can kind of seem black and white. But yeah, once, once you've seen sort of people living it and putting it in their daily life and, and experimenting with different kinds of, you know, devotion and adding different practices and trying to make it all fit, you see it's, it's bigger than, you know, just a set of courses. It's, you have to make it work for you, you know? And so I was able to relax some of the, some of the strictness about it for myself. Um, I mean, you follow the, what happens in the courses, but you just, the anxiety about whether it's right or wrong or what's going to come of it is, is a bit, it's a bit less. And I can, I can also probably equate it with um, when I was struggling and thinking, you know, am I going to, am I going to continue with this practice? Again, it, it came back to, well, it's my practice. You know, it's, it's not about fitting into to one way or another. And if I, if I continue, it's, it's really because I have found a way to make it work and because it's, it's mine, not because of whatever other standards are involved. Yeah, I think for me, I, I would say I, I took some inspiration. Like, I mean, I didn't really know much about, well, or anything more than what you learned the, in the Gwenka, um courses before we went to Myanmar. So, what we got in touch with, also because of, yeah, what we um, research or places where you sent us to, I thought. I got really some inspiration, like some, maybe some other angle of the practice or, you know, some teacher like Webu Sayadaw or something, like some reading some discourses or like seeing how their practice is a little bit different from what we do in the courses, but also has its value. It helped me, yeah, to get some inspiration for my practice and also sitting a course in Myanmar. I don't know. I, the students there, they were so disciplined. <laughs> like it was crazy. Like I always felt like the slacker because like 10 minutes before the gong, they were in front of the demo hall. And I'm like the last one kind of coming in just like a minute before the group set or something. So sometimes on courses later, when I set a course in Europe, I was like, hmm, I should be a little more. Myanmar about this <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't even they weren't even you know serious meditators they're probably taking a course who, once a year or however whenever they could they just they just slipped into the discipline so easily it seemed yeah, mm, yeah those are great reflections that um it it, it definitely it reminds me thinking of that, of the experience of coming into a more structured course where there's, uh, it's just a more intensive and uh, intentional atmosphere that's being set up apart from the life that one is coming from, which may be necessary in the way that those courses were first brought over and carried in Western contexts. But I remember as I started to spend more time in monasteries as a practitioner, the thing that really impressed me or impressed upon me, one of the insights I had was that I don't need to push. I don't need to, this thought came up with, with you, Steve, as you mentioned, your, some of the, the tension or the pressure you had in looking to see how, 
how you can get the most of the practice and what if uh, what if it didn't work and your own kind of anxiety with that. And I, when I would go to courses, I would often feel, oh, the time is so limited and I'm away from, you know, there's worldly life and there's this intensive practice life and I just have to make the most of every minute I'm here. And when I would be at monasteries for longer, there was a relaxation and seeing that I didn't have to chase these insights. I could relax into the overall practice and atmosphere and let them come to me as they did. And that sense of relaxation completely opened me up to a new set of understanding the Dhamma, understanding the, um, uh, the workings of the mind, and uh, rather than chasing it, being able to step back a little more passively and observe what was naturally manifesting in every situation, where, wherever I was. And that was, that was really quite exciting to do. And uh, I think that, um, that, this, that, that was really interesting for Western practitioners as they come, is there is this kind of combination that we haven't really mastered in, in many of our local Dhamma communities in the West, where one is able to understand the sense of discipline and practice and rules and um, protocols and everything else, but not necessarily hold on to them so tightly uh, to be able mm-hmm. to 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 follow those as and when they're they're needed to their extent, but also be extremely relaxed in how how one is carrying it, how one is holding it, the expectation one has of others, the tolerance one has of others of, uh, of where one might fall short and, and realizing the range of responses that are available to, uh, to being able to, to respond to that aside from simply being some kind of like monastery cop or something. And so right. I think, uh, and it reminds me of a, a interview that we had uh, a few months ago with Venerable Kanda, a British nun who was in Myanmar. And she spent some time talking about, she also came from the Goenka tradition and then became a nun in a nunnery. And she, there was a, a passage of when we were talking to her, she referenced um, between these sittings and they weren't one hour sittings, you know, sometimes there were several hour sittings. The, the women would all kind of chatter constantly. And it was quite hard for her coming from the Goenka tradition where there was this noble silence, but she realized that they were able to switch over pretty easily and from one environment to the other. They were able to just have this really communal, warm, friendly, chattering vibe when they would, they would have meals or BT time, but then they'd go in the hall and they'd all, they'd all sit just perfectly still and, and pursue the practice. And that also taught her how she was able to, being in this Burmese monastic environment, how she was able to not slack on the practice and yet also not carry such a burden where, you know, really when you look at it, the, the, the rules and, and the protocols of monastic life are far and away beyond anything you'd find at a Goenka center uh, in terms of the le- how, many the, how many rules there are, the fact that it's for life and not for a short period, the fact that there's these, uh, this vinya that's expected to be followed, as, uh, cultural expectations as well, wearing the robes. Um, so the amount of rules that one is expected to follow is actually much more, but there's a way that those rules are being held that is, is different than how many people enter a, a, a Goenka environment or probably a lot of other Western Sangha intensive courses for that matter. Yeah, it's, it's complex and, and subtle <laughs> because the, the, the teachings of, of advanced or enlightened meditators are, are always just keep working, just keep working. Don't waste your time. It's, this time is of the essence. And so sort of from, from high up, it, it is that strict. And like you say, if you, if you dive in, then there's these external, um, 
these external elements that that make you focus but somehow within that you need to you need to have it be a longer term a longer term thing so that the valve the pressure valve is is released on any particular um period of time and maybe maybe it has to it it helps with the belief of of um you know your your mind moving on into to next lives which i still struggle with and find find difficult and don't integrate into to my practice but i can really see how that could help uh, that could be a real kind of you know element in your mind to think okay well there isn't a lot of pressure right now because this could this could go on for a while and and as long as i'm looking and advancing the same direction that somehow we'll get there it actually reminded me of the the two nuns we spent quite a bit of time with and teja and suta mm. like when joa was talking about the rules because they were following all the rules and when we kind of hung out with them and traveled with them um whatever we had to make sure to eat in time so that they would get their food but they were so um relaxed and happy and it, yeah it didn't seem like a like it wasn't like a hard horrible rule that like, no. it was just light and that's how it was yeah yeah, yeah. Mm, right that's great looking back at your time in myanmar the time you spent uh, traveling with monastics and monasteries and nunneries are there any particular anecdotes or memories that stand out <laughs> <laughs> You mean especially like directly related to the monastic life, or um, oh, anything, anything from your from your time there? Well, one thing I remember very clearly <laughs> is was it Steve? Where were we we were doing some research about some monastery? Where where was this? Where they bathed me in Hanlin, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, we came and and we were looking around some old monastery or something and then there were some people from the village and they were washing their clothes in a like a stone pool or something and some of them were bathing and they waved at us and giggled and stuff and then anyway at some point they just made me come into the water and they started <laughs> washing me and and I was like ah oh, but no I can't I like I only have one set of clothes and then suddenly came a, a girl with like cloths to make longies from and they I could pick one and then she would just run and sew me a longie and the other ones the other women were taking me in and washed me and washed my hair and everyone was giggling it was kind of it was super fun there was a woman with a baby and then and then we they took me out and put me in, in this longie and, and I was like oh my underpants are wet and they're like take them off, take them off. <laughs> and then they were laughing at me because I didn't want to take them off. <laughs> so it was just like very lovely. They kind of integrated me in their, in their daily intimate routine. And it just felt very nice to be, to be, I mean, of course I wasn't really part of it, but it felt like I'm a little bit part of it. And it still makes me smile when I think of it. <laughs> we got, we got to meet a lot of, um, senior monks in, yeah, in monasteries, yeah. partly because of, of researching the, the Shui Lan book and, and, you know, 
there was a there was a purpose for us to talk to them about you know having it be a, a connection to to people who might come there in the future or to travel um, but it was so nice to kind of forget mostly about the the verbal connection and the intellectual and just sit sit with someone um, who you know has let a lot go <laughs> has a lot of experience in uh, in this feeling of why we were there for me and Mar, you know it being in the soil and in the roots of of looking at simplifying your life and mine rather than you're always chasing more and more so to be in people with in the presence of 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 those people on several occasions was was really I think it was just grounding each time. It wasn't like a. It wasn't like we were, you know, this ah, ooh, guru kind of thing we s sunk into because they were quirky and and interesting and unique all on their own. But it always fe felt like a kind of an honor that I don't know why we we deserved, but um, we appreciate uh, being being taken in and. Um, able to connect through them to whatever was was going on larger in, in their practice or in the practices of the country. I remember one time we were just looking for somewhere to sit. Maybe it was in Tsipa, and we we found out there was a monastery or some community place and we went there because someone said you you can you can meditate there. And so we went in and someone said, oh the Dhamma Hall's this way so we went to this where the Dhamma hall might be, and then we sat and we started talking to someone. And then they said, "Oh, there's there's a senior monk here. Do you want to talk to them?" And then we went in and talked to them, and had to translate it and just made a connection, just because we also sit on cushions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mm, that's great. Um, I think that's really your, your story, Katie, uh, about uh, how Alungji was just sewed for you in the process of, of trying to bathe. I think that these stories really get at just the, the, the extraordinary generosity that is shown to foreign yeah. practitioners who, who come. You know, the most remarkable story I ever heard was about a, uh, a, uh, a friend of mine who came in and he decided to become a monk at a monastery for about 10 days. And he had no experience in Myanmar. It was his first time. And he, he was in a remote monastery where it was only him and the Sayada, the Burmese Sayada, in, in the countryside mm -hmm. in Shan State. And the, as you know, most of the showering, bathing happens publicly outside. There's male and female, mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, concrete tanks filled with water that... Uh, people will stand around in their sarongs and they'll 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 bathe outside, not undressing. And this foreign, this American monk was confused how the proper way to to appropriately bathe while exactly. not taking his robes off. Exactly. And there was no one there, there was no one to ask because it was only him and the Sayada. So eventually, after a couple of days, he went to the Sayada and he asked. Um, he he very delicately was asking about this and the Sayada said, Oh, that's right, you know, you're from a country where you don't bathe like this and so it might be hard for you and uh, and so they talked a little bit and then the next day there there started to, some a truck arrived and they seemed like they were clearing some ground, starting to do some work, and that happened for a couple of days. And then eventually, the my friend said, "Well, what's going on here?" And he said, "Oh, well, they're building you a bathroom 
because we realized you don't really know how to shower this way. And my friend was his floored. He said, I'm here for 10 Aww. days. And you're, you're built, you know, and he was also mortified because he had never intended yes. that he would bring a construction crew out, the expenses and everything to build a bathroom for his week stay. But this was the extent to which the Sayada was going mm-hmm. to make sure that this foreign disciple, even for a week, was able to to not be uncomfortable with um, and, and, f- and concentrate on the practice. And mm-hmm. and then this guy had, had said, you know, I, he was a digital nomad. He said, I've traveled the world. He said, I've never experienced the extent of the generosity that I felt mm-hmm. in that moment. And I, I was, I was just speechless that, that this level of anticipation and, and generosity would be given. Um, and then he just, he just simply didn't know how to respond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you can, you can really tell in the culture. Um, I often think of Myanmar, like here, when I'm walking around here in the metro station or something, and there's people begging. And then I look at um, how do we deal with those people in our culture? And, you know, people might give something, but there's always something awkward or off about even, even if people give something, to someone, it's there's like a a status gap, or there's like a okay, I am the one giving, I'm the good person, and 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 you're the person down on the on the ground receiving. Whereas in Myanmar, it was kind of the opposite, right? If you walk around even in a bigger city, and there's maybe people asking for food or money or whatever, and then you see people giving to them, and they do it with such joy, and you know exactly they don't have a lot either, but but it's kind of ingrained in the culture that giving you gain from giving. So they're, they're thankful that they have the opportunity to, to give. And I, I thought it made all the difference in terms of how, how this whole society feels like the general feeling. And I think that's something we really here in our Western culture, we haven't learned and done. And it's still like, it's odd and we have the perfect social system and it's great but we're losing the personal connection in a way. So we just, we pay into the system and then some anonymous, you know, you get your money maybe from some, some anonymous um, system, but you, you don't have a connection between the people giving and receiving. And yeah, there's, it's a skewed relationship if someone directly gives and someone receives. Yeah, it's, yeah. I don't know how to, how to <laughs> phrase it, but yeah. No, and I think it's, I, I think I have, I also have been affected by that yeah. element of it, like to, to see how much uh, people look to gain merits, to, to look to gain um, this side of humility by giving and letting go and supporting people who do, to do um, work on themselves and work on the Dhamma, support those people is, is, a pretty selfless act to, mm-hmm. you know, rather than trying to put yourself up, you put people up who are, who are actually not trying to climb the ladder. Um, and I mean, it's still, still can't quite get there in, in our society, but I, even to have a, a glimpse more of, I can get something from it. I can, I can work on my ego. Um, it, it really does help. Um, and, I think maybe a good example of it is kind of a mixing that as well as a Western construct. I've got involved in the um, effective altruism community. Um, 
which is using science and research to to find out which causes actually um, are most effective for the people they're trying to help around the world or in terms of poverty and people who actually need material help but also with um, um, animal rights or animal animal abuse uh, as well as AI and where our world is going. Anyway, it uses research and so they have a pledge that you you say you promise to give 10% of your income or whatever percent you want and you promise to do that for your life. And so I took this pledge and uh, it really became a big relief to take the pledge because then you don't think, should I give, should I not give? It's just, well, I'm giving this much anyway. Here's an opportunity. I can actually be there and enjoy it. You know, I can, I can look at someone who's there, you know, asking for money and say, yeah, this is, this, this goes to you and I can, I can be positive about it and not, not awkward and not shameful because this is, I understand this part of me and how we can both gain. Um, yeah, so it's, it's not quite this idea of, oh, really, I gain merits, but that helped me to kind of do this pledge and integrate it with, you know, re- reflection and research. And, and, and it, I think it needs to be that when, when we live, you know, outside of a place like Myanmar. But still, there's, there's, little, there's little elements that when you see a whole culture or a whole country doing, they kind of stick with you. Mm, that's that's really true, and I think that you're, some of this terminology you're using is interesting. Looking, unpacking the word merits—that's obviously a bit of an awkward word in English to try to understand, and has religious overtones. So it can be hard to wrap one's head around. Uh, Katie used the word joy, and I think that is something that that one can really um, really stand on that that feeling of joy when giving and that even if giving is happening in certain kind of Western cultures, the joy that could be attached to it is often overlooked and missed out on. And that's something I've, mm-hmm. I've seen from my earliest days in Myanmar when I started to understand the, the Buddhist society in, in more depth is that the Burmese are masters at not missing any opportunity for the, the, the moment of joy to arise in any act of giving, that they maximize Mm -hmm. that to an incredible degree, to the sense that I might give a meal to monks, but I don't just give a meal to monks. I invite you as my neighbors to come and watch me give the meal. And then Mm -hmm. after I give the meal, I express my, I rejoice at what I've done and you have the opportunity to rejoice with me. So these are, these are all just moments where we just get to increase the joy and increasing the joy means that we increase the giving because we remember that, we have more opportunities to give later on that, that we, we associate the joy that's with it. We want to do it more. We take pictures of it so we can remember the pictures. We invite our friends so that it's a communal <laughs> experience. And there's so many things that happen that just increase the sense of joy from a single act of giving. Even if that giving is, is, is the equivalent of a couple dollars, it doesn't matter. It's the mental feeling that goes with that, that is being maximized and explored. And, I, I've spoken when I gave pilgrimages there. The the uh, some of the Western meditators, when they would go back, they would often report their first few months back in their home countries, just looking for little things they can do that they could take a sense of joy in doing, and realizing uh, realizing the power of 
whatever you give, giving it fully and completely, renouncing, if it's a dollar, you renounce claims to that dollar entirely with every part of your mind. And then you feel joy that you're doing that. And that gets out of the cycle because even in, in the West, there's so much, uh, there could be so much internal kind of strife or guilt about did I give enough or should I give the next time or what do they think of me or, you know, all of this. And to, to really just be able to mute the volume a little bit on that and to, to be inspired and, and educated by how you see the Burmese going about this. To, to realize that what you're already giving, recognize it, rejoice in it, have, take pleasure in it, take, stand up for it, you know, don't, don't hide it, really, really claim it and own it and feel good about it. And where there are further opportunities to give, then do that too. And then it, it, it really can become a sense of, uh, a sense of joy uh, in one's daily life and, and then having an underlying ef- effect of also being able to underlie this much deeper spiritual practice that, that one is doing and uh, eventually support the, the meditation itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we have this, everybody understands the adage of, of you, you get more in return when you give, but it just in, in practice, we just can't really get there. Yeah. Mm. But right, can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think this also underscores where we're at at this present moment, that with this coming on the one-year anniversary of this terrible coup and all the suffering that's mm-hmm. gone on there at the monastic and other levels, is that as as us, as with many people listening, as foreign practitioners, the benefit, the treasures that we've received from this this unconditional, selfless giving and this joy that this that these same people, these monasteries, these nunneries, these meditation centers are now in their darkest time in our lifetimes. And mm-hmm. the, and they're not necessarily asking us to, to, to give. They're certainly not asking us to return any kind of favor of what, what the foreign practitioner community has benefited from previous visits. There, there's certainly no thought of that. As, as you know, many are, 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 are quite humble are quite, um, have such a degree of humility in their own lives and in their own practice. But this is the one time where any debt of gratitude on the part of foreign practitioners for, you know, what, what spiritual teachings, either in person or through lineages, one has been able to, to access that this is the time that this giving back in the other direction is the most needed and the most critical and looking at how one's practice on the cushion can start to have effects in in daily life and beyond daily life but in whatever form of engagement and awareness and support uh within one's limitations and abilities can happen towards uh you know looking at at these these sites and these places and these people in Myanmar that have given so much and are now under so much duress yeah and I- think if if we look at on an even kind of larger or deeper scale that that anyone with a serious practice would be would be happy and honored to know or 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 at least you you could you could feel you could have faith that they're get going deeper into your practice because you came in contact with or shared these experiences in Myanmar and now you're a person who, who is touching, touching 
face with someone on a, on a level with more joy, or you've strengthened your practice, or you've, uh, you, you see each other, you know, a little more humbly and a little more equal, they would be so happy about that. I mean, that's, that's the, the ultimate, we keep hearing that's the ultimate gift for the Buddha. If, if we want to do the right thing in terms of what the Buddha was teaching, it would be to live the practice. There's no other amount of Dhamma that is more, of Dana, sorry, that is more precious than spreading the Dhamma. And so I, yes, the, the material, uh, the material side of it, of us helping is absolutely the time is, is now. But it's so nice to, to be able to sort of strengthen, even with conversations like this, the, the feeling that we get from God, from the people there and, and how it can it can spread. I think they'd be very happy that what what they hold precious is going beyond their borders. Um, well, we have one cute story that our our baby is uh, getting a head start on meditation because of a little statue we got in Myanmar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do tell. <laughs> she, uh, our daughter Tilda. We have a uh, we have a little statue of a meditator. We didn't buy many souvenirs in Myanmar, no. but one, and I think it was at the um, the site with the the Tipitaka carved yeah. into tablets in in Mandalay. Yeah, yeah, Kuthara Pagoda. Yeah, and so we we got this little hand carved statue of a of a of a meditator, um, and it sort of sits near our meditation cushions. And so our little daughter from before she was one would come and sort of sit on my lap uh, or on another cushion beside us and just want to join in the feeling and sit there and sit there for a few seconds. And she would grab this little meditator and um, play meditation with it and take a little like paper towel or something and put it around the shoulders and say, blanket, blanket. And she calls it Buddha. And for some reason, she also learned to call it Sangha. We, we might have said Sangha, but I don't know, really, yeah. she was like, Sangha, Sangha, Buddha. And, uh, and she continues to do that. So <laughs> she kind of picks it up and knocks it over and throws it around. But it's this, it's this such a cute, innocent little connection to her having her own children's meditation course whenever she feels like it. And it's centered around a little, a little, gift that was lovingly carved and is standing up to her beating in Myanmar. <laughs> we also have a, a picture that Umandala drew for us from Gwenkachi. Right, the, the, the head monk in the Injun Bin. Yes, and, and we brought it with us and it, it's, it's hanging on our wall there. And, and she loves it because Gwenkachi is wearing glasses and she... She she calls it Wenchi Wenchi <laughs> and points out the glasses. And so. She's obsessed with glasses and tearing them off our heads at this point. <laughs> yeah. So he's in the club because he wears the glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we sometimes think of Umandala when yeah we, yeah <laughs> deal with Tilda. Yeah. <laughs> mm, that's lovely. That's lovely. Those are great memories. Well. I, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on this call, as well as your continued support in all kinds of way over, over the course of this past year with what's been going on in Myanmar. And uh, 
And yeah, that's just, those are some wonderful things to reflect on. Thanks so much time for taking the time to do that and sharing them here with me and publicly to all of our listeners to uh, have a bit of joy and inspiration in their hearts as well. Well, thank you so much for doing all this work. And yeah, and the opportunity and, to re- yeah. revisit some of these uh, memories and oh, yeah. good feelings. It was actually inspiring. <laughs> I'll be honest, not only is asking for donations my least favorite thing in the world, but I find it pretty uncomfortable as well. Yet it's an unavoidable but necessary task in order to ensure that our platform can continue to bring you stories from post-coup Myanmar. And unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that there's a basic minimum cost to keep our engine humming. So please allow me to take a moment for that least favorite and uncomfortable thing to do and ask sincerely for your generosity in supporting our mission. If you found value in today's show and think others might as well, we ask that you take a moment to consider supporting the work. Thank you for taking the time to hear our spiel. And with that, it's off to work for the next episode. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts, or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.